0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're The the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinsch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk crisis in Ukraine, the White House supply chain announcement, outbound investment screening, and just a bit more. So get ready. For the trade guys. Gentlemen, we've got breaking news. Obviously, Russia is invading Ukraine, it is disrupting global markets. Our stock market continues to plummet as we speak today on Thursday, February 24th. One thing I wanted to ask you guys is you know, estimates indicate that sanctions are at least somewhat successful in 30 to 35% of cases. What do you guys think sanctions can do? Biden said that, you know, as they escalate, we're going to escalate our sanctions, and he's already imposed a first tranche of sanctions. So what can these sanctions possibly do?
1: Well, it's kind of like the... Uh... You know, in, instead of dropping the, the frog into uh, boiling water and killing him right away, it's dropping the frog into a pot of cold water and turning on the heat. A long time later, frogs—the frog—this is really a really live.
0: gross analogy. I just want to say, Bill.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to do it with lobsters, but then I thought frogs were uh, made, oh man, made more sense. I mean, it's it, it it they can have an impact, but the impact is usually over the long term, not over the short term. And that will be particularly true in this case, because Putin has done an impressive job of really kind of isolating the the Russian economy from Western influences. I mean, it's kind of revealing how long he's been planning this, because they've spent a lot of time building up their reserves. So they've got a mountain of cash and distancing themselves from the dollar. There was, I saw an interesting statistic today. last, a year ago, for the first time, it held that Russia had more gold than dollars. In its reserves, so he's been getting out of the dollar, uh, out of the dollar as a reserve. The central bank's dollars as a percent of the central bank's assets dropped from forty percent in twenty eighteen to sixteen percent last year, and he's just busy getting out of the dollar, getting out of Western dependency, and the result is, I think that that the sanctions. They don't immediately bite. There was a, one of the Russian generals, I think made a comment a couple of days ago about, well, you know, so we don't get Swiss cheese and French cheese. You know, we have good Russian cheese. And, you know, you can have a debate about whether Russian cheese is any good or not. But the the point was that the Russian public is going to, I think, not suffer as much as people think they're going to suffer. The individuals that are targeted by sanctions that have their assets frozen and can't travel, they'll suffer as individuals. But if you're looking at a very large economic impact, you know, I don't see it in the short run. I mean, we're sort of strangling them, but it takes a long time, you know, to really cut off the blood flow. The thing that would have the most impact, which is not likely to happen for obvious reasons, is if everybody stopped buying their oil and gas, because their whole economy rests on oil and gas. That's the pump that keeps everything else moving. The Europeans are in no position to Stop buying it right now. Suggest so ironically, uh, you know, back in 1982, when Reagan told the Europeans, don't build the pipeline, the first one, it turns out he was right because he created a dependency. But even if they did stop, you know, the Chinese will just increase purchases, which is the other lesson of sanctions. If they're multilateral, you've got a shot at having an impact. If they're unilateral, it's very hard to make them work unless you're a very large country doing it against a very small country. Now in this case, they're partly multilateral because the Europeans are stepping up. Uh, I think the Japanese and Koreans will step up, but the Chinese won't. And that's a ready outlet for Russian products. Plus, I think uh, Scott sent around earlier the, the trade factor of the week from our friend, Ed Gresser, who's been on the trade guys in the past, who pointed out that total Russian economy is like what? Between one and 2% of the world. World GDP, that's right. You know, they're a small player when it comes to global economics. And what that means is if you're going to try to stick it to them, it's hard.
2: Look, hydrocarbon trade is worldwide and fungible. So it's very difficult to isolate Russian oil and gas from from this general fungible commodity.
0: Yeah, it's not like it's got a brand like a cattle would, you know. We don't right. have, yeah. There's not the a switch. Russian brand or American
2: brand on it. Yeah, French wine's one thing, but Russian oil's a totally different thing. Yeah. Now, I would I would note that we are importing Russian oil at the moment. So, right. hydrocarbons makes some of these sanctions programs counterproductive, frankly. So, this morning, oil exceeded $100 a barrel for the first time in a number of years. Mm-hmm. That's good for Russia at this point. Further geopolitical tension will boost the price of hydrocarbons, also good for them. And I also would note that Russia has managed to become the major supplier for at least Germany and per, and l- perhaps much more of Western Europe, and it's winter there now. So this is a very fraught situation given that their principal export is hydrocarbons. In fact, it made me think of, Andrew, our conversation with, with Daniel Juergen. We interviewed him mm-hmm. when his new book, The New Map, came out. That's right. And uh, just an observation that world oil prices were a lot lower not long ago. On election day, twenty twenty, they were forty one dollars a barrel. Yeah. All right.
0: And and we also remember when they dipped below zero. Oh yeah, they, they,
2: they went because negative because the for a storage while. Issue. The futures market went negative. There was, uh, yeah. So so it is something that can be influenced and geopolitical uh priorities uh, may conflict with climate priorities, at least for a time. But one of the things that I would hope the administration is thinking about is what actions do we have to take to lower the price of oil? It would have to be a worldwide effort. That would at least constrain the, uh, the Russians' actions, given their dependence on that single commodity.
0: Now, of course, the United States is not dependent on Russian oil, and we're going to stop importing it immediately, I would assume.
2: Right, but it's a, as a as a globally traded fungible commodity that won't
1: really affect the price materially. Right, right we'd right. have to do other things. You know, I so, think they've been so. talking to the Saudis and OPEC nations because the way to to do what Scott's talking about would be to get OPEC the rest of OPEC to increase production uh, and bring prices down. Of course, that's not really in their interest either. Right, uh, all oil producers benefit from high prices, including us, by the way. Yes, <laughs> sure, of course. Uh, and so there's going to be, I think, some resistance to bringing it down. But, but Scott's right. If you get it down to, the, I think that most people would say the, the break even point is somewhere around uh, these days, like between 60 and $80 a barrel, depending upon where you are and what your production costs are. But if you get it down in the 40s, you know, you're really starving these countries. Yeah, you put, put a lot of pressure on them that, that otherwise wouldn't be there. So but it's very hard for other producers to do that because they end up losing just as much and I know we've you know we've made a major effort to try to get other gas producers a gutter in particular you know the Emir was here two weeks ago to redirect uh, gas exports to Europe to make up for potential Russian shortfalls and I think the Emir explained a, a lot of this is long term contracts yes plus
2: it requires investment none of this happens overnight so
1: Massive investment. Tough situation. Yeah, you've got to liquefy it, and then you've got to have boats to carry it, and then you've got to have the right terminals at the other end. I mean, that, a lot of that has been built over the last few years. And I think now uh, the United States is – I think I read in the last quarter, or la- a couple of months ago, the United States is now the largest supplier of gas in, to Europe, I think.
2: its It was for a time, yes. Uh, so – that's so right.
1: some of the infrastructure is there, but there's a lot more that would have to be done. And, and getting out of contracts is, is not easy. And, other, then, and if you're doing that, then you're going to be depriving other people. And that has political repercussions as well. So... Guys, we've got this first tranche of sanctions, and
0: yesterday, White House spokes Jen Psaki said that the next tranche of sanctions would probably involve the two largest Russian banks, um, which were not included in the initial wave of sanctions. The administration said that all options are on the table, are, are on the table which could include cutting off Russia from SWIFT uh, or even sanctioning Putin himself, which the United States has never done. What, what do you think about that? Does that do anything?
1: Well, no, I mean, it'll have, a, it'll have an impact. Uh, the main thing that will happen, I think, is the ruble will go into free fall, which will raise prices in Russia. I mean, that, it might have a, but again, a long-term impact. Consumers will be paying more for food. But go back to what we were saying earlier, he's done a pretty effective job of insulating the economy from outside influences. So, you know, if you think of this as like a two or three year play, yeah, at the end of that time, it'll have a significant impact. And that may in turn increase uh, public dissatisfaction with Putin, which I mean he, the state's been moving in an authoritarian direction anyway that may not matter anymore you know if they stop having genuine elections, but it takes a long time to have that impact I mean even if the bottom drops out of the ruble it's still going to take time to have an impact
2: and the longer these things persist uh, the the more likely they are to be turned against the people who are applying it i'm thinking of Cuba sanctions, which started in the 1960s, the Cuban embargo was, uh, was about as comprehensive as you can imagine. And uh, not only did Castro continue to stay in power, but he effectively over the years used the embargo as criticism toward the United States. And essentially, we we were to blame for every hardship the Cuban people he, suffered. He,
1: he blamed us for everything bad that happened in Cuba. Right. Uh, Putin's already doing the same thing. Everything... Right. Everything... The, that's going to happen bad in Russia is going to be the fault of the West. Now, does anybody believe that? I don't know. I mean, I I recall I was in Russia once for a conference and I was intrigued because it was um, mostly an economic conference and the Russians who were in attendance, who were some of them were in the energy sector, some of them were not, but they were all senior officials in companies. They were very critical of Putin's economic policies. They basically said, you know, he doesn't have one. He doesn't care about economics. He doesn't understand economics. I mean, they were really, really harsh. But then, not by design, but it, it was sort of inevitable, the conversation turned to Ukraine. And this was long before anything that we're talking about today had happened. And it was like, you you know, you turned the, the light switch off in the room. They were 100% behind Putin. And what Putin wanted to do to them was exactly the right thing to do. And there was absolutely no sympathy in the room for the Ukrainians. And all this talk about common cultural heritage, you didn't hear that in that room. You know, the idea that the Russian citizenry is going to rise up against what Putin's doing, I think, is fiction.
2: But overall, I wouldn't hold out hope for sanctions being the key to resolving this issue. Our friend Gary Huffbauer, who did most of the pioneering research on this uh, at the Peterson Institute, always said most of it's about feeling good instead of doing good. So,
0: Mm. Well, that puts a fine point on it. I mean, the other thing I was going to say is even if we cut them off from SWIFT, doesn't Russia and China have their own versions of SWIFT that they could, you know, institute?
2: They've been working on it, as I understand it. So, yes.
1: Yeah, they have them. They're not big right now. But- if you take away from them the one that is big, then yes, they'll grow. That will facilitate transactions really between Russia and China and a handful of other countries. But to the extent that countries are willing to either participate in or at least honor the sanctions, it won't help them that, you know, they'll stay away from the ch- Russian and Chinese swift alternatives.
0: Okay. Well, we're going to all have to stay tuned and, you know, just hope that the Ukrainian people won't suffer too much through this and that we can get through this crisis and hopefully get Putin to stop. Guys, I want to ask you, there's a little bit of news coming out of the White House today that's not Ukraine focused. I don't think we've had time to really digest it all. But Bill, there was a supply chain announcement that the White House made that they had been wanting to make. What is the thrust of this announcement and what can we expect? I think this is going to be a whole other episode of The Trade Guys once we digest the 600 pages
1: that the White House released.
0: But what's your early take on this?
1: Yeah, well, it is 600 pages, which is why you're not going to get, why our listeners are not going to get a lot of details uh, today, <laughs> since it was released.
0: Well, Scott's already read it, so you know.
1: <laughs> this is what happens when you have time on your hands. It was released at 5 a.m., so uh, I'm sure he got up early to to take a look at it. But there's a backstory here that, in a way, it, it, it's impressive because it was released. On time. And, you know, the number of times the government does something on time, you can count usually on fingers and toes. But if you go back in history, one year, exactly one year, it was February 24th, 2021, when President Biden issued Executive Order 14017, in which he directed the administration to conduct a whole bunch of supply chain studies. Four of them were due in six months, and they came out in June. And they were in critical sectors, batteries, chips, pharmaceuticals and PPE and critical minerals. And they had a lot of recommendations to develop secure supply chains in those sectors. And I think all that's being implemented. But the same day and the same order also directed six other studies that were much bigger to examine entire sectors of the American economy. So transportation, energy, agriculture, healthcare, the defense industrial base, and ICT were the six. And they were conducted by cabinet agencies. Obviously, I mean, the defense industrial base was the defense department. Transportation was the transportation department. Food was the agriculture department. Okay. ICT was commerce and homeland security working together. And those were the studies that were released exactly one year later as promised. And it is 600 pages of fairly detailed recommendations, which we will have to digest and and comment on. They are designed though to encourage the development of resilient supply chains. And so what does that mean? First of all, it means carrots almost entirely and not sticks. For example, there's going to be a, and I think they telegraphed this one earlier, a new Buy American rule that will, for a set of critical items yet to be identified, will allow the federal government to pay a a larger premium in buying those items for federal government use. In other words, it's going to increase the price differential in order to allow the, the feds to buy American stuff, this kind of stuff, critical stuff, even though it's much more expensive than foreign stuff. Right now, I think we have a 25% price differential. And for this stuff, apparently, it's going to be some amount bigger than that. There's also going to be support for the Export-Import Bank to develop a new program to promote exports of critical items that we want to capture the market. Broad, But in doing so, it's going to be financing that supports companies, particularly small, medium-sized companies here in producing that stuff. So a lot of this is oriented towards what can the federal government do to help American companies become more effective producers, manufacturers of critical material. And so there's a lot of money involved here. There's a chunk of change of some significance. It's going to go into port improvements. The Department of Transportation announced that as part of this. Forget how much it is. It may be in the low billions, as I recall, to uh, deal with supply chain backlog supports. So there's going to be a lot of that in there. And a lot of it is going to be setting up offices in the government to help companies relocate their supply chains out of countries of concern, unnamed, but, you know, meaning China, and relocate them to here or to partners and allies. And I think there is lip service at least to partners and allies in this. I think we'll see how this all plays out. We have to read the fine print, but it's a huge effort. I mean, it's not just 600 pages. It's a lot of money, a lot of ideas, a whole collection of very specific things in those sectors designed to promote more resilient supply chains. But I think one reason why it will escape a lot of controversy is I don't think there's a lot of sticks. So it's incentives to companies to do what the government wants. And if the companies don't want to do that, then they don't have to.
2: And I think it's important that the incentives go beyond financial. One of the things that the government has a major influence on is permitting. And so, you know, for instance, here in North Carolina, there are major lithium deposits. And if you want battery production for electric vehicles, lithium's a very important ingredient. And so, permitting those projects comes before both federal, state, and local authorities. And streamlining permitting processes can do a lot. I would also note that for these uh, so-called rare earths and scarce materials, the United States has a pretty large share of the earth's crust, a lot of which is owned by the federal government. I looked up this morning and 640 million acres, that is 28% of the land area of the entire United States, are federal lands. Wow. And- Permitting on federal lands, you know, they may be rare as a share of the Earth's crust, but 640 million acres is a big chunk of the Earth's crust. <laughs> okay. that's,
1: that's, a, that's
2: a big old dude ranch right there.
1: You bet that is. <laughs> so, the, the, the issue is not just, uh, we've got the minerals. I mean, yes. we don't have the most in the world. We've got the minerals. We the issue enough. for the United the weak point for the United States has always been processing and refining. Yes, because we don't have that capacity, and then then we run into climate issues. Because well, of, maybe, maybe the trade business.
0: guys, maybe the trade guys should start our own business in refining, and you know, uh, you know, hey. Well, look, I, I think if anybody right? in the world
1: is going to refine
2: minerals in a responsible way, it's going to be American companies, right? I, I can make the case right now that American natural gas production does a better job of methane control than Russian natural gas. So if you're Europe choosing for climate reasons whether to buy American or Russian natural gas, the American natural gas is superior. So there's no reason we can't do that better.
1: And Andrew, if you want to give me a couple billion dollars, I can set up a lithium refinery. There you go. Maybe we need to go seek funding, Bill, you know,
0: (laughs) <laughs> I don't have that kind of cake laying around, but we could we could go seek some funding. I mean, you know, so, hey, this is America. We got an idea. Let's go for it, right? The
1: money, the money is in the studies that came out today, and the money is in the Competes Act for some of this stuff.
2: So mm-hmm. it's it's not just
1: recommended. It's, if, it's the,
2: authorized. if the Competes Act passes, it's authorized. Very interesting. Not appropriated yet, but authorized. So that's good.
0: That's interesting stuff, guys. As we continue to digest this act by the White House, we'll talk about it more on Trade Guys. Finally today, I want to ask you guys about something that we call outbound investment screening. This is something that the White House and Congress are weighing new oversight of U.S. investments in China. Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania said, "We're quote, we're in an economic war, whether we want to use that language or not. What is going on with outbound screening? Is it a good idea for the government to impose outbound investment screenings on U.S. firms, including venture capital funds that invest into Chinese tech startups?
1: I think it's a terrible idea. And I've said that in the past. And it's taken an ugly turn recently because in Senator Casey and Senator Cornyn, who are jointly behind the Senate bill, were unsuccessful in getting any action on it last year in the Senate. They tried several times and, and failed. But then the House put it into the Competes Act at the last minute and passed it. So it is in the conference now with the Senate Euseka bill and uh, Representative Sewell from Alabama and Johnson from Ohio, I think, actually, who introduced the House counterpart. And there's an active campaign to get this done. There are both philosophical and practical objections to it. The Congress considered the idea four years ago when it updated CFIUS on the inbound side. Uh, and there was this proposal showed up then. And they decided not to do it because they thought that it was redundant with export controls. That is, you know, what we want to stop the adversaries getting is U.S. technology. Uh, and that's what export controls do. And putting an outbound investment restriction is redundant with export controls. Now, the arguments shifted a little bit since then, and what because what now they say they want to do is we want to block venture capital. We want to block money going to Chinese startups that might end up on their own inventing things that we don't want them to invent. My view has been that the Chinese are not short of money. Uh, and we don't, you know, they, they don't need our money. I, I think the, the place where there's a, gr- a small grain of reality in this discussion is know-how, and the transferring know-how can be an issue, and it can be advantageous to the... But know-how and capital are only tenuously linked. So
2: my first question to the champions of this bill is, what's an American investment? Because once you tell me if I'm running a venture capital firm, I'm setting up a headquarters in Ireland because
1: that's not a U.S. investment. Well, and worse than that, the, the, the legislation refers not to investment, but to transaction, which is much broader than investment.
2: This is, this is a recipe for capital flight if it's taken to its extreme. In the meantime, you know, keep in mind back when the last uh, corporate tax bill was being debated in 2017, so way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth in 2017, one of the big problems were corporate inversions. And the tax law was specifically changed to prevent American companies from moving their headquarters outside of this jurisdiction, which they were incentivized to do under the previous law. So this is just gonna re-incentivize companies to get out of the US, which is a bad idea for a number of reasons. Most importantly, because headquarter operations is where the value is added. That's where the high quality, high paying jobs are. That's where the intellectual capability of the company lies. So uh, there's, there's a lot that hasn't been thought through here, notwithstanding the current account deficit, Because we have an investment surplus in the United States, private capital coming in, we're able to run big trade deficits, big current account deficits. So I'd like to know what happens to the dollar when we do all this. But in any case, I'm with Bill on this. I think it's a terrible idea.
0: Well, unfortunately, today's a pretty terrible day over in Ukraine, and it's a terrible idea. So we have to end on terrible... But I will leave you guys with this. We didn't have a lot of time to talk about NFL free agency yet, Scott, but it opens some point in March and we're going to have to talk about players, you know, moving around in the NFL because that's that's what we do with the trade guys too occasionally.
2: Yes. But there's also a good news story to end on, which is we're back in the guacamole business.
0: Back in the guacamole business. That's right. Crisis averted. Yes. And I was thinking about you guys when I was at Whole Foods the other day looking at those beautiful avocados.
2: Yep. Avocados from Mexico are back in trade.
1: They look just so. like our heads. Is that what yes. you're
0: telling? <laughs> we are back in business. Green and smooth. <laughs> trade guys, as always, thanks for your beautiful insight. We will see you next time on this trade channel. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.